blood and uncertainty in Iraq today, Friday, March 15th, from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Almost a decade after the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq, a veteran war reporter assesses what Iraqis have gained and lost. What Iraqis have lost is a sense that they know what the next day will bring. The next day could bring a normal day at work or it could bring another car bomb. Also ahead, an Iranian-American is running for president of Iran, and he says he's got a constituency. If I become president, I will establish a province of Iran outside Iran. Iran has 30 provinces at home, and there will be another province outside. Plus, we're not making this up. The unlikely friendship of American action movie star Steven Seagal and Russian President Vladimir Putin. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It seems like only yesterday, and if you look at the headlines from Iraq this week about suicide bombings and heightened sectarian tensions, it actually seems like the war there is still on. The conflict officially ended, from an American perspective at least, in late 2011 with the withdrawal of most U.S. troops. The war's impact, though, lingers, especially in Iraq. Jane Araf reports from Baghdad for Al Jazeera English and the Christian Science Monitor. Jane, media outlets like ours are all geared up to note the 10-year anniversary of the start of the war there. Are Iraqis doing much about it? That's really interesting, Marco. They're absolutely not. You know, I keep asking people, is there going to be a holiday? Do you remember where you were? Are you going to commemorate it? And they say, basically, they're just trying to survive one day to the next. One person said to me, you know, the only thing I remember is the last car bombing. I mean, that sounds a lot more grim than it actually is, but anniversaries of that kind really do not resonate here. And I think that's probably because this is a country that reinvents itself pretty much every other day. So much happens and so much changes that they don't really look back to 10 years ago. What's life like these days for Iraqis? Compared to 2003, it's a lot more... It's almost uncertain. I mean, you'll remember those days just after Saddam Hussein fell when everything felt like it might be possible. Now the possibilities have sort of narrowed. It's getting quite a lot more precarious, I would say. Disputes between the North and the South and then the West, what's happening with Syria. There are a lot of influences swirling within the country and outside the region. So day-to-day life, I mean, people get on with their lives. They go shopping, they go to work, they go to school, but there isn't any real sense of certainty. There isn't any sense that things are really getting better, that it's on an onward track. I think that's it, really, that everything seems in play at the moment. And when you consider all the blood and treasure spilled, which we'll be reporting more on on the show next week, I mean, do you ever hear Iraqis saying, yeah, that was worth it, or, well, that was really (laughs) a mistake, we were better off before? You hear a lot of people saying that was a mistake, but you never really know whether they mean it. I mean, just the thought that people would say, after all these 10 years, after the trillions of dollars spent, after the tens of thousands of lives lost, it wasn't worth it. That's such a heartbreaking thought that it's it's hard for people to say it. And when you do hear people say it was better under Saddam, I almost try to pin them down and say, 
really, what do you mean exactly? And the interesting thing is, and the sad thing is, you hear people say that even people who lost relatives who were imprisoned or executed under Saddam Hussein. But I think really what it goes to is that what Iraqis have lost in addition to the ones they love is a sense that they know what the next day will bring. That has been completely lost. The next day could bring a normal day at work, or it could bring another car bomb. How has all this uncertainty today kind of changed Iraqis' views of the United States and of the Americans? You know, I was sitting with a group of young political staffers in Parliament the other day, and one of them said to me, I want to ask you a question. And I said, sure, expecting the usual kind of lecture about the United States, and this was all about oil. He said, does the United States even think about us anymore? And it was really poignant. Everyone was glad to see the U.S. soldiers leave, pretty much. Nobody wants foreign troops on their soil. But there is a segment of the population here that feels like their country is broken and the Americans broke it, and then they left without fixing it. Freelance journalist Jane Araf in Baghdad. Jane, as always, thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. By the way, a new study focuses on the economic costs of the Iraq war for U.S. taxpayers. The study is out of Brown University and puts the price tag at $1.7 trillion. But the authors say the total could balloon up to $6 trillion once long-term care for combat veterans and interest payments are factored in. Then there are the personal costs of the war and the invasion itself. The world's Alex Galifant reports on the testimony of one Marine and his Iraq war diary. Tim McLaughlin is a 35-year-old lawyer from Boston. He studied Russian poetry in college. He's also a retired Marine Corps lieutenant. In 2003, McLaughlin led a four-tank platoon in the invasion of Iraq. There are two books that I kept. One of them is an operations journal. Uh, It's grid coordinates, it's ammunition counts, it's platoon rosters. The other is a diary. Both of them are on very standard Marine Corps-issued green books. Uh, If anyone served in the Marine Corps, they would recognize it instantly. Pages from Lieutenant McLaughlin's handwritten Iraq War Diary are now on display at the Bronx Documentary Center in New York. They've been enlarged to poster size, arranged in a grid across an entire wall. ...left-hand turn towards the canal through the palm grove. Approaching the backside of a house, a 60-millimeter mortar fell on top of me. On the cover of his diary, he wrote the phrase, his horse was named death and hell followed them. It might be from the Bible or Johnny Cash. He's not sure. We're trained to go to war, uh, and and that's what it is. It's hell and death, uh, and it's not fancy or romantic. Um, I don't know where the quote came from, though. Much like a lot of this stuff, I don't remember writing it, although I remember the experiences. On one page of Lieutenant McLaughlin's diary, there's a ledger, like something an accountant might write, except for what it's counting, and the word below, large and blocked out in red, kills. There's boredom, too, in these pages, daydreams, letters to his girlfriend and one to Victoria's secret, and poetic summations of daily life atop a tank. Two knotted drills, 300 clicks of road march, four rules of engagement, five feet of visibility, six days of waiting... The exhibition in New York was put together by two journalists, the writer Peter Maas and Gary Knight, a photographer. Both followed McLaughlin's unit, the 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, during the invasion. Here's Knight. In the public's mind, these wars start on a certain day, they end on a certain day, and that's it, and they're done. 
but for the Iraqi civilians who aren't here in this show, apart from in the pictures, for, for the guys who fought in the war and for the small number of people who, who reported on it, it goes on forever. Knight's images and excerpts of articles by Peter Maas sit alongside the war diary. Another member of Lieutenant McLaughlin's platoon showed up on the day the exhibition opened, Gunnery Sergeant Nicholas Popovich. For McLaughlin, he's important. He is probably one of three people who I respect in my life as really educators for me, my parents, my Russian professor, and my platoon sergeant. So I'm really honored to have him here today. He's a silver medal recipient, um, multiple combat tours, took an RPG in the head, is now blind, um, and does extraordinary things for his community in San Diego, and just lucky to be here today. Um, and I know you're not... a re- a relic or anything, but... <laughs> no part of the of, display. <laughs> of everything that's here, you're the most important part of it for me, and I thought I'd just introduce... Popovich didn't know McLaughlin was writing a diary while they were in Iraq. No, I didn't. I didn't. And uh, But the platoon commander and platoon sergeant, it, you, I, I, I don't want to use the word close. It sounds kind of weird, but but yeah, you're somewhat close, so I, I, I'd like to think I'd probably have a pretty good idea what's what's on all these pages here. It's the first time the platoon sergeant and platoon commander have met up in almost a decade. Popovich, who wears a black patch over his right eye, can still see a little out of his left. They crouch up close against a wall of photos. These ones, snapshots that McLaughlin took during their tour together. They show the tank platoon caught in time. Oh, this is your tank. You got Conkright um, in all his glory. And Schroeder, and it would have been Hagewood, it looks Hagewood, like. Hagewood, yep. And you. Lieutenant that? McLaughlin and Gunnery Sergeant Popovich were there in 2003. So were Peter Maas and Gary Knight. Their experiences of the invasion of Iraq are private and unknowable. But this diary, these words, and these images, it feels like they get you pretty close. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant in New York. Invasion, Diaries, and Memories of War in Iraq is on until April 19th. Army Private Bradley Manning revealed a lot about Iraq when he gave WikiLeaks a trove of classified U.S. documents. Manning is facing charges of aiding the enemy, and he regularly appears at military hearings at Fort Meade. U.S. news outlets seem to be losing interest in covering them, but as the world's Arun Roth reports, foreign reporters keep showing up. I was part of the media swarm that descended on Fort Meade, Maryland at the end of 2011, when Bradley Manning made his first appearance before a military judge. Since then, the media presence at the hearings has shrunk dramatically, but I noticed that the foreign press had been sticking around. In between court sessions, I talked about it with Ed Pilkington, the chief Washington correspondent for The Guardian. I mean, it's interesting. I'm sitting in, I've been sitting, as you have indeed, for the last couple of days in this in this courthouse uh, sort of spillover room. And in there, you've got people from Spain, you've got people from Italy, France. Um, you've got quite a lot of American bloggers who, who are filing to their own little uh, outlets. But uh, the big American um, organizations have only turned up to hear Bradley Manning himself speak. They haven't been here through the sort of my, more minutiae that we've been sitting through, which I, you know, I think is important. It's important to tell the whole story and to get the, the whole picture and not just turn up at the, the slightly more sensationalist moments. It's an open question why the U.S. media have fallen off this story. But what's keeping the foreign reporters here? For Ed Pilkington and The Guardian, part of it is personal. Because we, of course, were involved in publishing the WikiLeaks material right at the beginning. Um, and so 
but there's a slight feeling, I think, at the Guardian that you know, we having been so engaged in it, we can't then abandon the person who from whom the information allegedly came in the, in the first place. The New York Times was also there at the beginning, publishing the WikiLeaks material along with The Guardian. But they don't send a reporter to all the hearings. That's a sore point with the critics, but the Times Washington bureau chief said that, as with any other legal case, we won't cover every single proceeding. But what about the media that weren't there from the start? The foreign reporters I encountered were drawn to the story because the leaks pulled back the curtain on the sausage factory that is U.S. foreign policy. David Allendet is the U.S. correspondent for the Spanish newspaper El País. Meanwhile, uh, from the outside, it's seen as a bigger deal because, you know, there's, there was this interpretation in the WikiLeaks saga that those cables, especially the, the State Department cables, were showing uh, the State Department and American diplomacy in a way different than its portrayed from the government. So I think that from the outside, it's more interesting than from the inside. Alan Dett says that his readers tend to be more sympathetic toward Manning and that they want to know how the U.S. government is treating the man responsible for the leaks. Camille El-Hassani with Al Jazeera Television says her audience is extremely interested in the documents that expose details from the U.S. war on terror. For my audience, the information about uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, about civilian casualties, uh, extraordinary rendition, broader things about U.S. foreign policy, these are not things that the U.S. government has properly answered in a lot of people's minds. Uh, They haven't given answers to those questions. And, uh, you know, our audience felt that there were some answers in those documents. And I don't know that the American public is quite looking at it that way. The American public might not want to look at it at all, which could explain the dwindling media presence at Fort Meade while others in the world may still want to know more about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, rendition, black sites, and Guantanamo, these are topics many Americans might rather forget. For The World, I'm Arun Roth. We've teamed up with Frontline and NPR's On the Media to examine in more detail the U.S. coverage of the Manning case. You can find more of Arun's ongoing coverage of the hearings at theworld.org and check out On the Media this weekend. Ahead on the world, you're not going to believe what's getting smuggled out of Israeli prisons to Palestinian women on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Quick, name the latest Steven Seagal movie. I know, right? I couldn't either. But one person who might have actually seen the latest Seagal flick is Vladimir Putin. Seems the Russian president is quite cozy with the film star. In fact, this week, Putin and Seagal made a joint appearance in Moscow. Fred Weir reports for the Christian Science Monitor in Moscow. Apparently, they're old friends. And Steven Seagal, it has to be said, is very popular in Russia. You know, like the the French are mad about Jerry Lewis. The the Russians just love his action movies. He never seems to get old, although he looked awfully old and somewhat paunchy in the flesh. Still, he is really popular here. That has to be said. Are his movies on TV? Are they? Yeah, they're on TV. They're on DVDs. And Putin uh, also likes to court Western celebrities. Vladimir Putin and Seagal have teamed up to open a martial arts center. What, what's that about? Well, it, it's a Sambo center. Sambo is this kind of cross between 
wrestling and judo. And Steven Seagal is apparently one of those martial arts guys. And he is also a Buddhist. And he goes often to Buryatia in Siberia, which is a Buddhist republic in Russia. So he's a serious guy, and he has these interests in Russia. The martial arts thing is something he has in common with Putin. So it's not that weird that they would have opened that martial arts center together. It's funny. I gather this club, Sambo 70, is part of uh, Putin's efforts to revive Soviet-era mass physical training programs. Why is that happening now? He said that the situation of young people in Russia is really dire. He said, and I I find it hard to believe, that two-thirds of all Russian children have chronic illnesses by the age of 14. Um, And if if that's anywhere near true, it does spell disaster uh, for Russia down the road. Russia has serious demographic problems to begin with, uh, but they can't even draft enough people into the army to keep the ranks filled out as it stands now. So something does have to be done about health. And it's a populist idea. Like almost every Russian over the age of 30 grew up with this Soviet mass sports program. And it was very successful. It was implemented in Soviet schools, but it was basically designed to get all kids active. And it also prepared boys for the army. Uh, And I think all of these thoughts are on Putin's mind right now. And and will having Steven Seagal, you think, help that effort? I guess. I don't know how politically significant it is. I think it's just Putin likes to hang with celebrities. Now, I got to say, I wasn't even aware of what the last film Steven Seagal made was. And then I checked the filmography. And indeed, the last dozen have been straight to video. Has Putin said which of Steven Seagal's movies is his favorite? He did not say that. Uh, yesterday. I'm like you. I have no idea. I think I've seen some Steven Seagal movies in the deep past, but can't really remember them. Fred Weir with the Christian Science Monitor. Thanks for telling us about this. My pleasure. And in case you're still wondering, I am told that the latest Steven Seagal movie came out last year, and it's called Maximum Conviction. There's going to be a presidential election later this year in Iran. Iranian law bars current President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad from running for a third term in office. That could be a good thing for the U.S., which has clashed with Ahmadinejad over everything from Iran's nuclear program to human rights issues. But who would replace the incumbent? The candidate field is still taking shape, but there's the usual range of conservatives, moderates, and reformists. One candidate might surprise you, though. He's a 64-year-old Iranian-American who's a professor of public policy and international development at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Bruce Wallace reports on his long-shot quest to become Iran's next president. At the beginning of February, Hushang Amir Mahdi hosted his first Ask Me Anything. It's a forum on the well-trafficked website Reddit, where pretty much anyone can sign up and talk about anything. A lot of people have done them. Barack Obama, Ira Glass, Anthony Weiner, post-disgrace. And Amir Mahdi generated enthusiasm. He got fewer questions than Obama, but more than Glass and Weiner. It's part of a campaign strategy that Amir Mahdi is pretty excited about. This is the most innovative thing anybody has ever done. It is not just innovative within the Iranian expatriate community. It is innovative among any community. Part of what excites Amir Mahdi is the idea of creating what he calls Iran's 31st province, a voting bloc of expat Iranians. If I become president, I will establish a province of Iran outside Iran. 
Iran has 30 provinces at home and there will be another province outside. That may not be a bad thing. Nagme Sourabi is a professor of Middle East history at Brandeis. Taking the elections inside Iran seriously and then campaigning among the diaspora community, it could be, depending on how it goes, the beginning of a new type of politics for the diaspora community. The Reddit appearance sparked a bunch of articles and offers to speak. I got up with Amir Mahdi a few weeks ago in midtown Manhattan. It was the fourth interview he'd done that day. He'd flown back that morning from campaign stops in Scotland and Ireland. The problem with the U.S. and Iran. At an event last Friday at the University of California, Berkeley, Amir Mahdi laid out his platform for improving U.S.-Iran relations and jump-starting economic development in Iran. It's unclear how much traction this platform has in or outside of the country. Outside, in Amir Mahdi's 31st province, his candidacy is not a slam dunk. Somewhere around 300,000 ballots were cast outside of Iran in 2009, and opinions vary widely among these expats. Many Iranians in the U.S. who fled 1979's revolution are suspicious of Amir Mahdi's contacts with the regime, contacts he's made in an effort to improve U.S.-Iran relations. Manaz Afshar, who went to the Berkeley event, acknowledges Amir Mahdi's credentials, but says that's not enough. I know he's very knowledgeable and he's written so many books, but that's different than living in a country where you hardly have you know, enough money to support your family. My thing was, if I couldn't connect with him, how could people in Iran can create this connection with him? It will, of course, be hard to make the connections with people in Iran while he's in America. Although he's traveled back to Iran regularly, Amir Mahdi has spent most of the last 38 years in the U.S. But he argues that's good. For one thing, he's not caught up in Iran's rancorous political infighting. And he says he's perfectly positioned to start repairing relations between Iran and the U.S. I am well acquainted with both cultures. I know when they say A, what they mean, when they say B, what they mean, in both, on both sides. So I, I am in a better position to create that little trust that has to be developed before anything. Even if he can convince voters to trust him, Amir Mahdi still has to convince the Guardian Council to let him run. The powerful body made up of six theologians and six jurists decides which candidates can run. In the last presidential election, it greenlighted four out of 475 hopefuls. Again, Brandeis professor Nagme Sorabi. Let's just put it this way. It would be a really fascinating development if the Guardian Council approves his candidacy. Amir Mahdi's response to doubters? Be careful when you make predictions about Iran. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace. U.S. and Cuban history will be made tonight at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Find out why later in the show here on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, Syria marks two years since the start of the uprising against Bashar al-Assad. We'll get an update on the conflict. And later, Cuban heavy metal in America... Plus, an Israeli-American dispenses sexual advice to Orthodox Jews. Marital intimacy is like watermelon. Wow, really? I guess we'll find out how exactly just ahead. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The Arab Awakening, it began in Tunisia. A fruit seller protesting the government set himself ablaze. Within weeks, the president was out of power. A different narrative in Syria. 
It's been two years since the anti-government uprising began there. The president is still in power, and the country is now engulfed in a civil war that's claimed 70,000 lives and turned more than a million Syrians into refugees. But numbers paint only part of the picture. Rania Abu Zaid is Midi's correspondent for Time magazine. She describes some of the most poignant moments she's witnessed over the past two years covering Syria in a blog post for The New Yorker. This is how she recounts one scene in northern Idlib. The rebels there decided they wanted to take out a checkpoint that was ringing their town. It was a government checkpoint. And the government retaliated quite uh, fiercely. And I was in the hospital and it, it was pandemonium. The electricity kept cutting out. There were women running around trying to, uh, knocking on every door, turning to every man with a gun, asking them about their sons. There were children that were being brought in. They didn't have anesthetic. Uh, They were running low on many things, including medical personnel. It was chaos. Hmm. And your description of a place where there is nobody, one deserted, partially destroyed home in a town where there are no civilians is very moving. Put us there. What did you see there? Well, sadly, that's very common, actually. Uh, the town that I was referring to looks like many towns in uh, in northern Syria. It's, it's destroyed and largely devoid of civilians. And it's a very strange feeling to sort of walk through a town where you can see signs of life everywhere. You can see you know, tea bags and you can see uh, cutlery. You'll see things that are in their place, like porcelain can sometimes survive things that concrete does not. Mm. You will find, you know, teapots that are that are just laying on their side next to uh, a wall that's collapsed, and yet the teapot is fine. And yet all of these people who once lived here are, uh, are somewhere else, either internally displaced or they've become refugees. These scenes that you describe are effective at, at making us feel the pain. Do you think these descriptions can do anything to, to change the situation on the ground? Well, I don't know. You know, all I can do is describe them. All I can do is report. And then what happens after that is, is you know, beyond me. Uh, initially, when I first started covering it and first started going into Syria, people w- were keen to tell their stories. They wanted to, to tell the world what was going on. And I've, I've noticed a hardening and a, a bitterness that has developed over these past two years. Initially, people thought that the world didn't know what was going on. And then gradually they started to, to realize that, no, the world knows what's going on. And this, uh, this notion that, uh, you know, this feeling of abandonment, there's a feeling that the world now knows what is going on in Syria, and yet it doesn't care. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of people who, who often tell me, why should I talk to you? Why should I tell you what I'm feeling or my story? What difference does it make? Yeah. When you look back on these two years, Rania, what are some of the faces you see? Hmm. So many faces. Uh, some uh, some of them of people who uh, I know who are no longer here. And uh, there are some faces that I can't forget. I remember I was in, uh, I was one of the first journalists to cross into northern Syria over a mountain last summer as uh, the first refugees started coming in from the uh, from the northern city of Jisr al-Shagur, and they came in their thousands. And I spent a night in an orchard with these thousands of uh, refugees, and it just so happened that it rained that evening, and it was quite a downpour. Mm. Many, many people just, you know, spent the night out in these muddy fields. And the next morning, there was a, an old woman, a very old woman, and she looked at me, and I was getting ready to cross back into uh, Turkey illegally. And with with a group of young men, and she was standing there too, saying that she wanted to cross. And I said, "Listen, grandmother, you can't cross. It's very difficult to cross." 
she looked at me, she held my hands and she said, my daughter, can you just get me something to, to wear? My clothes are wet or, or just a piece of plastic to put over my head. Can you just get me something to change my clothes? And she was soaked through. Mm. And uh, that she's, that's just one of the faces that, uh, that uh, I've encountered in these past two years. Mm. Well, we'll link to your New Yorker blog post, Rania, at theworld.org. Rania Abuzeh covers Syria for Time magazine. Thank you. Thank you. It's not uncommon for prisoners anywhere to try to get things smuggled into jail. But in Israel, Palestinian prisoners are smuggling something valuable out of prison, their sperm. Yes, you heard me correctly. Fertility specialists in the Palestinian territories say several women whose husbands are in Israeli custody have become pregnant using sperm smuggled out of prison. The BBC's John Donison has been reporting on the story. He's in Ramallah in the West Bank. First of all, John, is it clear how these prisoners are actually getting sperm out of prison? Everyone is being pretty guarded, really, about how they actually get it out. Obviously, they don't want the Israeli authorities to find out and stop them doing it. We've actually spoken to two Palestinian fertility doctors who've been helping women there at separate clinics and they said that the women would arrive at their clinics with the sperm uh, in anything from small plastic bottles to plastic cups but they wouldn't give any information about how they got it out. In fact the doctors would say look they don't know and they didn't want to know. Tell us about these women uh, who are doing this. Why would they go to such kind of extremes to get pregnant? Well, look, the first uh, woman who we spoke to actually gave birth uh, last year to a little baby boy. Her name was Dalal uh, Zibin, and her husband uh, is serving 32 life sentences in an Israeli prison for his involvement in bomb attacks in Jerusalem in 1997. And obviously, she has little hope of having any more children. She, in fact, has some children from him. And what the doctors are saying is, look, in some cases... These women, they wait a long time for their husbands to get out of jail, and then it's too late for them to have children. And in some cases, the husband will then take another wife. And these doctors were saying they felt tremendous sympathy for women in those circumstances. Do Israeli prisons provide any conjugal visits? Is that another option? Not for Palestinian prisoners who are serving what Israel calls security sentences. Now, it's different for Israeli prisoners. They are allowed conjugal visits. And there have been some pretty high-profile cases of Israelis who have managed to have children while in jail, notably the man who assassinated the Israeli Prime Minister, Yitzhak Rabin. Now, as you said, John, you spoke with this uh, one fertility doctor who would not reveal how he's been getting the sperm for in vitro fertilization. But did he speak about what the complications are with this smuggled sperm scheme? Yeah. I mean, what he basically said was, look, the sperm can live in ideal conditions for 48 hours once it's out of the body before it is then frozen so they can carry out IVF treatment. Let's just hear now from Salam Abu Khaizaran. He is a fertility doctor at the Razan Clinic in Ramallah. And one of the interesting things he was saying is that when the women arrive at the clinic with their sperm, he would say, look, we'll freeze it, spend a few weeks, a few months thinking about this and go out and tell everyone as to what they were planning because they didn't basically want gossip to spread in the prisoner's wives' village. Mm. 
You don't want really a woman who all the village know her husband being in prison 14, 15 years, walking pregnant in the street. It w you will create a problem. So we tell the woman, we advise her to go back to the village and tell everybody in the village that, look, I got a sample from my husband. The sample is okay, and I am planning to do IVF in a few weeks or a few months in order for the village to support her rather than blame her for cheating or something uh, like that. John, it's pretty extraordinary, this whole story, and just kind of how sophisticated the whole scheme is. What's been the reaction from Israelis who are hearing this story for the first time, perhaps Palestinians who are hearing it for the first time? Well, I think Palestinians, first of all, would say it shows an element of defiance that they're prepared to go to these lengths. The Israeli prison authorities have expressed skepticism, uh, saying that they have strong security measures in place. They didn't rule out that it was possible to do it. And one of the things the doctors were saying to us was, look, you know, these prisoners, they have a lot of time to think in jail and they're able to come up with some pretty ingenious ways of getting it out. One possibility is that sometimes prisoners in jail, they're allowed to spend very short periods with their young children who they might have and that it could be passed across. Then the wives, I don't think, are allowed any direct contact at all with their husbands. The BBC's John Donison. Thank you, John. Thank you. If sperm smuggling is an uncomfortable subject, try discussing sex within a cloistered religious community like Israel's ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. Its members place a high value on modesty, which means sex education hardly exists, and many couples have little idea what to expect on their wedding night. An Orthodox Jewish sex therapist in Jerusalem is trying to break the ice. He's come out with a book, which he says is the first explicit sex guide written for strictly devout Jews. Reporter Daniel Estrin paid the therapist a visit. There used to be a sex shop on the way to Dr. David Ribner's office in downtown Jerusalem. The sign's still there, big red letters spelling out sex shop, sex, love. But you can barely read it because it's been scratched out. The shop went out of business. No surprise for a city brimming with the pious. Things are quite different in Dr. Ribner's discreet office near the top of a Jerusalem high-rise. You see a number of boxes here. I also have available for people if they need to purchase them in a, in a private place, uh, lubricants, uh, vibrators, massage oils. And he's got an unusual collection of books on the wall. There are the sex books. Like one of the most famous is The Guide to Getting It On, as well as a number of editions of The Joy of Sex, which people may know from previous editions. And then there are volumes of religious Jewish texts. Full set of Chumashim, uh, Mishnah Berurah, uh, uh, the Rambams, and uh, Mishnah Torah. I can't think of any other bookshelf I've ever seen where you have the Talmud right next to the Guide to Getting It On. Uh, there probably aren't <laughs> any. David Ribner was ordained an Orthodox rabbi in New York and did his doctorate at Columbia. Then he moved to Israel and started counseling devout Jewish patients on sex. He says even though sex is a positive thing in Orthodox Judaism, it's become taboo to talk about it openly. Sex is appropriate only within a marital context, but beyond that, it's not talked about. Because of that, it's become very difficult for people to have any kind of dialogue about that. Ribner says there are very few parental birds and bees chats. Instead, premarital counselors meet with couples right before their wedding night. And he's astounded by the advice many of them give. He's heard that one counselor tells brides-to-be this. Marital intimacy is like watermelon. Just like you can eat watermelon every day of the week, but you should just save it for the Sabbath, so marital intimacy you can have every day of the week, but you should, we should save it for the Sabbath. I mean, that's a message that I think is on so many levels counterproductive. So Ribner has set out to tell it as it is. 
He's co-written a book called A Time to Love, The Newlywed's Guide to Physical Intimacy. He says it's the only explicit Orthodox Jewish sex guide on the market. Flip through it, and you'll see no illustrations. But there's a sealed envelope on the back flap. It warns readers that there are sexual diagrams inside. If you don't want to look at them, you can rip off the envelope and throw it away. Dr. Ribner opens it up to show me what's inside. There are three diagrams of basic sexual positions. We wanted to give people a sense of sort of where, not only to put their sexual organs, but where to put their arms and legs. And if you don't know this, if you never saw a movie, if you never read a book, if you have no idea what to do, then how are you supposed to know what to do? Now, these are all, I mean, for lack of a better term, stick figures. We don't see any faces. Um, They're very, very simple drawings. What was the idea behind that? We wanted this to be acceptable to the widest possible population with the least risk of being in any way offensive. We did, in fact, consult many other sex manuals to see what kind of illustrations they used, and we felt that those were just too graphic to be comfortable for people who had really no previous contact with this aspect of their lives. I took a copy of the book to an ultra-Orthodox Jewish study center and met a 22-year-old man in signature black hat and beard. We went to a side room, and I showed him the sex guide. I don't know if there are any books like this out there, but I think there is a need to, to explain this topic and, and to understand it and to do it in the right way. I think people are afraid of it, of this subject, especially in the religious community. He took me upstairs to where no one else was around to take a look at the stick figure illustrations. Just as he started removing the diagrams from the envelope on the back flap, he changed his mind and stuffed them back into the envelope. I'm not married yet, he said. I'll wait until it's my time. So far, the sex guide is only in English. The Hebrew edition comes out in a few weeks. Dr. Ribner expects many religious booksellers in Israel will refuse to carry it. But he hopes, at the very least, some will keep the book stocked behind the counter. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Thank the joy of sex for the ultra-Orthodox. We've got a few tasteful excerpts from the manual at theworld.org. Now, here's a mystery for you to solve. Archaeologists have made a gruesome discovery in central London. They found a dozen or so skeletons. The bones were dug up during tunnel excavation work for a new rail line through the city. And the bones may be the tip of a very interesting archaeological iceberg. According to researchers, those bones date back to the 14th century, specifically to a time when London was ravaged by a deadly disease. Thousands were buried in mass graves around the city, and those bones that were recently unearthed may signal the location of one of those ancient mass graves. Now, the cause of this 14th century horror, that's what we want you to name. We'll hear from an archaeologist about the significance of the find in London in just a bit. And before we take a break, a quick update on the parliamentary election in Greenland, which we previewed early this week. We described it as a small vote with a global punch. Well, it delivered a historic result. An Inuit woman who skins seals as a girl looks set to become the new prime minister. Alika Hammond's party won the vote amid a backlash against the previous government's push to open Greenland to more to foreign mining interests. Hammond warned voters that their environment and livelihoods are at stake if Greenland rushes into billion-dollar mining deals. You're listening to PRI. 
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, and I bring you fresh news about a deadly 14th century pandemic. This news is based on skeletons recently dug up during excavations along rail lines in central London. And someone who knows a fair bit about the time period that those bones originated from is Barney Sloan. He's an archaeologist who's written about their history, and he joins us now from London. Tell us about this discovery. What's interesting about these dozen or so skeletons that have turned up during uh, excavations? Hi, they're a, a very, very interesting find. Basically, what happened in 1348 has been described as the most lethal catastrophe in recorded human history. And the Black Death swept across Europe, including London, in a matter of a year and a half, killing something in between uh, 25 to 75 million Europeans. And such was the catastrophe that the hundred or so cemeteries that the city already had were insufficient within about six weeks. So they founded three emergency cemeteries. And the second of these was on the site of Charterhouse, which is where the rail line is now going through. And that's what they discovered in digging around this rail line, doing these excavations. Now, the importance for us is that this is the first time that we got a decent look at this Black Death Cemetery. And so this keyhole, just 12 or 13 skeletons, is not a huge number, but nonetheless, it tells us an awful lot about how they approached burying the people in this emergency. And it may tell us a little bit more about what the disease was. So the Black Death, that disease, or the bubonic plague, that's the answer to the GeoQuiz today. Get into some of those details this discovery provides you with. I mean, what do you know now that you didn't know about earlier? Okay, so what people imagine in the panic that was brought by the plague, that vast pits were excavated and bodies were thrown willy-nilly into the holes. But what we found is very different from that image. What we find is that the graves are ordered and in neat rows. And if you think about it, if maybe 50 or 60% of the populace is dying all around you, that requires some guts and it requires some governmental order to ensure that removal of the bodies to these emergency cemeteries was undertaken in a kind of uh, an orderly fashion. So that's really interesting. I mean, given that, you know, they had to come up with these emergency morgues, I, I imagine that the Black Death reshaped the human landscape of London. It must have done. We know that people before the Black Death, with large numbers of populace, there were also large numbers of the poor. And we know that abbeys and friaries and so on were part of their duty was to look after the poor. And these poor would come on feast days and, and uh, they'd throng around the gates of these monasteries and churches and, and get alms uh, in the form of bread or perhaps coins. Now, after the Black Death, first of all, there's less of the poor because a load of them have died. Right. But also, people begin to become a lot more selective about the kinds of poor people that they're going to support. So instead, they start giving money to leper hospitals, to prisoners, and to hermits. We think that this is something to do with a kind of focusing on people who were in need, but also who could provide prayers for the souls of the dead. The second thing is that people give more charity than before. And, and the third thing that they, they do, which is people begin to set out in their wills where they want to be buried. And I'm certain that this is something to do with a fear about these huge mass cemeteries where nameless graves are all accumulated. So nobody knows where their loved ones ended up. Barney Sloan, author of The Black Death in London. 
Thanks for telling us about this discovery and what it means uh, in London. Thank you very much. At South by Southwest in Austin, Texas this week, there are 2,000-plus bands to choose from. Most are American. Part of the reason for that is getting a foreign band to perform in the U.S. is a headache. Just ask any rock promoter or manager. There are visas to apply for, legal documents to sign, and lots of unpredictability. Now, imagine the challenges if the band is from Cuba. And yet, there are a number of Cuban heavy metal rock bands at the festival this year. And tonight, they're putting on what's probably the first ever Cuban heavy metal rock show in the U.S., Alicia Zertucci is a festival coordinator at South by Southwest. She's the one who helped gets the bands their visas. One of the biggest obstacles is communication. They have a hard time having access to Internet. Like we're accustomed to we send an email minutes later, we'll receive a response. With Cuba, it's like you send an email and you just wait. So th- that, to me, was one of the hardest things to deal with. Once we thought that we had cleared a hurdle, there was something else that had come up. So the, the most important thing was getting them organized and, and the communication. It, it sounds like a bureaucratic uh, minefield. Um, metal rock is not the first thing many think of when uh, we think of Cuban music. Was anyone kind of scratching their heads uh, about metal rock uh, from Cuba that you wanted to present? I had a couple of people that I know that work with Cuban artists and I had spoken to them about it and one of them frowned. I think he was more into the idea of me bringing like the typical traditional music that Cuba is known for. But one of the things that we're known for doing is for staging. We did this, I don't know if you remember, in years past with um, heavy metal in Baghdad. It's like we like to stage certain cases of like the everyday life that musicians encounter and that sometimes, you know, first world countries take for granted. And this was one that was, it was a challenge and it was something that I didn't receive the response from many that I thought was something cool, at least not from the Latin Mm -hmm. um, music community. But, you know, on behalf of my colleagues and all of my team, everybody was encouraging, you know, whenever we would talk about it. And they, they were into the idea because they understand, you know, what the implications are to be playing heavy metal in a country that has the authoritarian government. So, Alicia, what do you hope will come of this showcase of Cuban heavy metal acts? Awareness and support the diversity of the music, heavy metal and rock in this society is something that is extremely overlooked. They're not seen and respected by the society that they live in. They call them freakies. In other words, they're freaks. Mm. And so I, I think it's important for us, you know, that work in the music community and that are in the performing arts to stage you know, different scenes of music and open up the borders and the doors for some of these acts to come and participate at their events. Yeah, it's about opening ears and eyes, isn't it? Exactly. Well, good luck with it. Uh, It sounds like uh, it's been a lot of work, but you've uh, achieved what you wanted to achieve. Yes, and we're excited. I think it's going to be a diverse audience, and it should be a memorable night. Alicia Zetuche, Festival Coordinator at South by Southwest and their visa supervisor. Thanks so much. Thank you, Marco. 
they are, Cuban Metalheads Escape, who wrap up the program today. They're one of the Cuban rock bands performing in a historical first tonight at South by Southwest. The world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, gatesfoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.